0: the CTO there. How you doing, Brad? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Really great to have you here.
1: Tell me a little bit about um, your your company. Sure, absolutely. So Mixmax. So we have uh, been around for about three years now. Um, and kind of just broad overview. So Mixmax is a uh, communications product. And Mixmax is the one product that your company would use to communicate with the outside world. Hmm. So we think of it as really the future of email and and all external professional communication. I see. Um, So just like you you would use Slack to talk within your team, uh, Mixmax is kind of the opposite of that. You use Mixmax to talk outside your team. And where this helps is we can help sales and recruiting teams. Think people that communicate professionally, people that are in email and Salesforce all day. And, uh, and we can automate their common workflows. Um, we can integrate with their existing tool chain. Uh, Gmail, Inbox, uh, we'll release support for Outlook soon. Uh, very um, popular integration with Salesforce and, and Slack and everything else. Um, but our primary integration today is with Gmail. And so we have a popular Chrome extension that basically brings all these really awesome features directly into the Gmail experience. Um, so you really don't have to change your workflow when you start using Mixmax. You can just continue to write emails inside of Gmail, and then Mixmax will give you all these, we call them superpowers, in your your, uh, Gmail inbox. Mm, Cool. That seems like a really valuable uh,
0: tool. Does this replace, um, say, Salesforce?
1: Well, so it uses Salesforce and Gmail as a back-end, but it does replace the UI for Mm. both and soon other products. That's a blessing. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So we are basically in a workflow where you would have maybe three or four Gmail tabs open and, and five or six Salesforce tabs open, we can basically condense all that down into a single tab, which is MixMax. Mm-hmm. And your primary customers are sales and recruiting teams. Yeah. Yeah. People who professionally uh, communicate for a living, you cool. know, think about salespeople who are in email all day or updating Salesforce or whatnot. Awesome.
0: So, Let's get a little bit into your background. We've known each other for a little bit. We first got introduced to each other back when we were interns at Apple. You were
1: one of the first people I met in California. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. 2005, right? Yeah. Wow.
0: It's been, uh, time flies, it's been a little bit. And that was a really great internship program at Apple. Um, Felt like we got to build something that was real, especially very early on in our careers.
1: Um. But tell me a little bit about what you worked on there at Apple. Sure, yeah. So I was on the OS X team, uh, specifically working on software updates. So at the time that I worked there was, uh, gosh, that was uh, OS ten point three, which we uh, called Panther. Oh, is that Panther? 10.4 was Tiger. I remember that. Yeah. Um, And so we were releasing all the incremental updates for those. So 10.3.5 and Mm -hmm. 10.4.1. And our team was responsible for building out tooling to make those faster and more stable. Uh, and we also got to qualify all the source code changes that went into all the software updates. So mm-hmm. it was pretty neat to get broad exposure across the entire company, across the entire stack, mm-hmm. review a lot of C code, which is always fun. That's my favorite
0: language. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Used to be, used to be, but yeah, I've done a lot of C. That was one of the things I got into when I was first getting into programming. Yeah, programming as a as a young as a young kid. Uh, yeah. It's a bit intimidating though as a as a beginner language. So all the uh, kids out there, you guys are you guys are lucky with the uh, more modern languages that we have. Oh, I know. No. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Even JavaScript today is called the you know assembly code of the browser. Which yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. kind of funny. <laughs> now they have all these other languages like JSX that compile into it. Yeah. TypeScript and whatnot. Yeah. But um, yeah, gosh, that it feels so long ago, you know. Now where we were at Apple, we were still running servers off machines in our own offices yep. using Subversion for source control. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Before Git existed, there was
1: Subversion and what was the other
0: one? CVS. Uh, CVS. Yeah.
1: CVS, yeah. Yeah, and we actually had to write a custom subversion hook for source code review yeah. that would automatically email us, like a full diff of all branches yeah. that were merged into master.
0: Yeah.
1: So uh, it was back in the day. Nice. So where'd you go after Apple? So at Apple, I went to Palm to work on WebOS. So WebOS was a, a somewhat short-lived smartphone uh, that at the time, back in 2009 when it was released, it was kind of seen as the iPhone killer. Mm-hmm. It was a... You know, amazingly innovative. The entire operating system, hence the name WebOS, was built out of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of people from Apple that, that went over, myself included, of course. And really incredible team, incredible product. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite a market success, and Palm got acquired by HP. But, uh, but I kind of look at it as a David versus Goliath story. Because yeah. our WebOS team was only about, it's like 200 people. Oh, wow. Against Apple, is you and I know, was thousands of engineers. Yeah. And and we built something that was really impressive.
0: Yeah. There was um, a lot of uh,
1: hope for
0: the product. Um, may have been ahead of its time, potentially.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there were, from a technical perspective, it was incredibly challenging. Yeah, Because we were basically running a full browser mm-hmm. like every single app was built just in html and yeah. css and, and javascript but to get that to work on a device we were doing all sorts of things like yeah. like i uh, built out the the phone app the actual dial pad yeah. which was just an html table right uh, yeah and, uh, um but we ran into these challenges around like garbage collection right because it's a very underpowered device it only had 128 megs of ram on mm-hmm. our low-end unit and I think it was an ARM 5, 500 megahertz chip. But something like in the JavaScript world, you know, garbage collection is just something you take for granted. And yeah. on a desktop, a Mark Compact runs in like 100 milliseconds. Yeah. But on that mobile device, it took 1.5 seconds. Mm. And, of course, because it's a garbage collected language, you can't really control that. So we had to do all these really creative hacks to build in... Um, a way to trigger the garbage collector yeah, and run that on the phone at certain times when we knew that the user wasn't, wasn't uh, using the phone. So it was really interesting. It, it it was kind of like this twilight zone type of world uh, working with the web because we had to just hack it up so much and, yeah. and customize so many parts of the web stack.
0: Yeah. Sounds like there was some very interesting technical challenges there. Oh yeah. It's interesting to compare that to say iOS, which did not have a garbage collector. Right, oh yeah, back then, <laughs> especially with Objective C, yet you had uh, reference counting. Yep. So you didn't have to deal with that particular challenge of the garbage collector to run. And I think that was a big uh, advantage, probably, uh, for that platform. And there was a big debate too. I remember it was always web apps versus native apps, and oh yeah, you know, what's the platform that's going to win here? Um, seems like on mobile, uh, I think native probably pretty clear Mm -hmm. um as a as a pretty dominant uh uh, winner but people only have a handful of native apps probably on their on their phone that they actually use Mm -hmm. and of course on the web um on your phone that's used extensively the browser and um on desktop um as well right yeah cool so you left uh You ended up leaving Palm at some point and joining a startup.
1: Yep. Yep. So after I left Palm, I joined a startup called Inkling. Um, And really, Inkling for me was a way to learn about startups because I always knew that I wanted to start my own company. It was something I always had a passion for. Cool. And so at Inkling, I managed the team there working on the web front end, which ended up growing to, I think it was about 17 people at peak. And uh, we wrote a lot of JavaScript there. And so we built a product called Inkling Habitat that's basically a full screen editor for the web. The Inkling at the time was selling uh, uh, textbooks via their app to college students. So kind of like a uh, alternative to um, Amazon's distribution model, you know, with the Kindle. for students who used Inkling, they could buy and download all their textbooks to the app and they looked really beautiful, really interactive, everything. So we were building the product that um, actually worked upstream to allow the textbook authors and the publishing companies that they worked with to actually author those textbooks. And so we kind of flipped the model. The model at the time was building everything for print first. So people would create these really large manuscripts and Microsoft Word and ship it off to the printer. But with Inkling Habitat, they were essentially creating it digital first. And when you create something digital first, you can completely rethink how to structure the content. It doesn't have to be linear because you can use hyperlinks. Instead of creating a two page spread in a biology textbook with diagrams, you could make that an interactive slideshow. Mm -hmm. So you can condense your content quite a bit. And so Inkling Habitat really took off in the publishing industry and um, even kind of broadened its focus to. Companies like uh, McDonald's actually use Habitat to produce their uh, HR training material. So to replace all their uh, paper binders that they would otherwise send out to all their restaurants. Um, and, and it was at Inkling, that's where I met my current two co-founders, Olaf and Shampori. Olaf was the product manager on Habitat and Shampori the lead designer. And we worked really well together. And we we built an entire team around that product to so the point that Inkling actually pivoted the entire company to Habitat. Wow. Yeah. So
0: you uh, worked really well with your um, other two partners there. Oh and, yeah. And you guys decided then to since we work so well together, we should probably go and start something new.
1: Yep. Yep. And, and we really kind of became best friends in the process. Yeah. And
0: that's great. It's always uh it's it's always really special when you're able to find a, a really good crew where everyone kind of flows well with each other. So we, your team there, um, you grew to 17 people.
1: How was that team structured? So we were structured by product. Uh, te- Technology-wise, we all worked on the same thing, mm-hmm. JavaScript front end. Uh, but we had several sub-products, Habitat being the biggest team. Cool. And another one was the, um, we, we called it the reader, but the uh, front end for consuming textbooks, mm-hmm. for reading textbooks online. Cool.
0: Got a great uh, background there. Um, I know, since we're friends, that you're also into aviation, which I definitely admire. I, I don't know if I would feel uh, completely confident of flying in a flying in an aircraft, uh, although my, my grandpa was a pilot, so it's something I've been curious about, I just haven't had uh, all the... Um, the all the courage to 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 actually get out there and try it um i do have another friend who who flies as well and very impressed by that um how'd you get into aviation
1: yeah so my grandfather was actually also a pilot yeah in in world war ii so it runs in the family and i guess skips a generation but it's always they work together (laughs) oh yeah no yeah yeah it's um it's, it's always been a passion. Yeah. I've always loved aviation, followed it ever since I was a little kid. Cool. And the point came when I was out here for my second internship with Apple back in 2006. And just one day it was said, well, I want to do this. I, I want to take flight lessons out here in California while I'm out here for three months. And searched around online and found this really great flight school called California Airways at Hayward Airport. And took an intro flight and was instantly hooked. So with that intro flight, you're just a passenger? Um, well, so they actually put you in the captain's seat okay. in the plane. Wow. And they have you take off. They, they have you do everything. Really? Yep. So For your first flight? For your first flight, yep. And you really fly the aircraft. Yeah, they, oh, I mean, wow. they, they don't let you land or do anything dangerous. Yeah. But yeah. they just create this awesome experience wow. where you're yeah. instantly hooked. You know? Yeah.
0: So once yeah. once you have that taste of it, you're, you're in. Yep. So... Have you, have you found there to be um, some similarities or commonalities between, say, the aviation world and the engineering world?
1: Yeah, yeah. So engineers actually do really well as pilots just because everything in aviation, of course, engineering is all procedural. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually a ton of analogies. Uh, there's like, take, for instance, accident prevention and analysis analysis. So in aviation, there's such thing called the accident chain. It's basically the idea that aviation is so well engineered now that no accident is caused by a single factor. They're always caused by a chain of contributing factors. So, and if any one of those contributing factors was stopped, then the accident could have been prevented. What would be uh, an example? So, like if a pilot, um, you know, crash lands somewhere, it's never just that. Let's say their engine died. It's that the pilot was probably flying too low outside of gliding distance of an airport, forgot to check their checklist to lean out the engine, which mm-hmm. is one cause of an engine stalling out. Uh, they might have been distracted by a bunch of friends that were in the plane. Um, but see how it's this chain where if they didn't have friends in the plane or if they had just checked their checklist or if they had been flying a little bit higher, any one of those factors could yeah. have closed that that accident chain and, and prevented it from happening. Yeah. Have you ever had any issues or incidents uh, while on the air no no uh it's been pretty safe yeah um i though i am pretty conservative about it and that i only fly in clear weather yeah um i only fly airports that i've flown before with an instructor or someone yeah. that's been there before so it's all been very safe though yeah. very enjoyable
0: it's your engineering background yeah yeah exactly off, right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice um cool. up
1: but yeah, and then uh, farther that analogy, engineering is very similar. You know, if you build your system correctly, outages are never caused by a single factor. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a another way that uh, aviation and engineering kind of overlap there. Yeah.
0: So you, so you mentioned this, uh, you know, this this chain of events. Um, when you're trying to debug in aviation, what, what does that look like? Is there a process
1: that you go through? So it's always checklists. So okay. everything in aviation is checklists, and many of which you try to commit to memory. So, uh, like in an engine out scenario, it's ABC: airspeed, best place to land, communicate with air traffic control. These are things that that all pilots know. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're aborting a landing, it's five C's: cram, clean, climb, communicate, comply. Cram being put the power in, clean being raise the flaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, debugging just has to be done instantly. Cause when you're in a plane, you can't pull over to the side of the road and, and check the engine. You, you have <laughs> yeah. to know how everything works.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and really that, that's kind of another interesting analogy between aviation and engineering. It's that aviation teaches you not to treat systems as black boxes. Mm. Um, you really have to know every part of that aircraft and how it works, mm. how the engine works how the fuel system works, how the electrical system works to be able to debug it just wow. from your seat in the air. How much time do you invest in this before you're able to, I guess, be fully licensed? So the FAA requirement uh, at the time that I did it was uh, 40 hours in the air was the minimum requirement. Mm-hmm. With a few other things, you have to take a written test and, and get a medical exam. Mm-hmm. Um, and But on average, I think people spend about seventy hours in the air mm-hmm. with sitting next to a flight instructor, uh, getting trained, and many more hours on the ground. So all in all, I think um, I think I went about twice a week for training, and it took about six months. Yeah, and, then. and is imagine a big chunk of that is hands on and yeah. in the
0: air. Absolutely, yep, yeah. yep. So so before takeoff with your instructor, you guys are looking at all the components. Uh, that need to be checked before takeoff, and then as well as uh, after you land. I guess there's probably a set of things to to check as well. Yep,
1: there's about two hours on the ground for every hour that you're in the air. Oh, is it really? So there's always the ground lesson ahead of time, talking yeah. about what what you'll do. And that's yeah. true for pilots in the real world too. Yeah, you know, especially military pilots, everything is planned. Every every minute of that flight is planned out. Yeah, there's a lengthy pre flight to make sure the aircraft's in good working condition. Yeah. Uh, you know, run up is your the test of all your systems before you even take off.
0: So there's also um, part of this is also communication. Of course, you're yep. um, you're in the air, and you eventually need to make it to land, and you, you need to find an airport. If things are going well, <laughs> hopefully yep. you can uh, get to an airport. Right? Um, how do you um, uh, how do you uh, sort out landing? when you're when you're a pilot and is there a certain protocol for communication? And I'm I'm assuming there's a whole world of communication
1: that, that goes along with this. Yep. And this is another area engineers do better because it's really just like the headers of a IP packet in aviation. It's who they are, who you are, where you are and what you want. Um, and so if you just follow that protocol in the air, um the who you are is usually your uh call sign mm-hmm. or the tail number of your aircraft. Mm-hmm. And as long as you follow that, you can uh talk to any tower and uh get clearance for any airspace, clearance to land. Um but uh it's it's also imperative that communication in the air is concise as possible. Mm-hmm. And this this is an area I think uh, engineers are pretty naturally good at concise <laughs> <laughs> <No, laughs> so like, short communication. I like that. So you're not trying to have
0: a conversation in the air. Exactly.
1: Yep. Hey, how's your day? Yep, it's all directives. Yeah. It's all yeah. IP packets, you know.
0: Yeah. flowing through the air. So when when you're up in the air, how much um how much are you aware that you're in a mechanical vessel, you know, in in the air and um there's things that can go wrong, other things to consider. What what's what sort
1: of awareness do you have while you're up there? So, in aviation, situational awareness is everything. As you're flying, you're constantly scanning the sky, scanning your instrument, instruments um, in a very methodical way, too. So, you have a process. They call it the flow, where your mm-hmm. eyes are mm-hmm. just moving around kind of in a circle. Scan mm-hmm. the sky. Scan the all the instruments in the cockpit mm-hmm. uh, in, in a specific order to look for irregularities. Yeah. Um, but also, when you're in the air, your hearing becomes more sensitive because you're listening for the engine. Mm-hmm. So that that's a way to learn about early warning signs yeah. if there's any trouble.
0: So you're you're taking in there's a lot of inputs then coming in. Mm-hmm. So you're scanning all the instruments, looking out at the sky, and then maybe a brief moment, being, Oh, cool! I'm flying. Yep. And then back to and back to scanning and searching the sky, and then of course you're always listening for the engine too. It sounds like yep. And, uh, yeah, if I heard anything go wrong with the engine, that would really. <laughs> really oh, well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That would obviously freak me out. And then, of course, you'd have to, um, when you're debugging, guess you that the to maintain your cool as well. Otherwise, you're probably going to make mistakes if you
1: enter into a panic mode, right? Exactly. Yep. Yep. And that's where the training comes in.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, training is a lot of fun because when you do emer- training for emergencies. Yeah. Uh, you'll go up with your instructor, and at some random point during the flight, they'll just pull the power, and they'll say, you have an engine out. What do you do? And your instructor oh, will just watch you like go through all the checklists, and it's you know pretty nerve-wracking, right? Because your instructor won't put the power back in until you're pretty low to the ground. Wow. So it, we, we did that training out by Livermore out in the East Bay in uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, we – my my instructor let me get pretty low to the ground. I think we were within fifty feet of the ground right when I was uh, simulating an emergency landing wow. in a cornfield somewhere. And then he finally put the power back in, <laughs> and I said, "Do you do you usually let students get that low?" He's like, "No, I just want to see you sweat."
0: <laughs> is is that the hardest part of the whole process? This particular. Um uh, tests or challenge. It, it is. I yeah. think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Once you get over the initial hump of learning how to land and, yeah. um, kind of acing that, I think yeah. the emergency training is definitely. So generous. I imagine
0: this, this builds some character for sure. Oh yeah. I'm wondering how this also, um, relates to, to being a manager.
1: Yeah. 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 I think situational awareness is a key skill for a manager. Yeah. Cause when you think about, you know, being a manager, you, you really have to have awareness of your team in a way that isn't intrusive. Mm-hmm. It's really just ambient awareness. Um, you have to be able to learn how to just look at your emails, GitHub requests, Slack channels to increase your situational awareness on how your team's functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you preempt disaster in the air as a pilot, and that's how you preempt disaster on your team. Yeah. Like, you know, someone Someone quitting or, um, or the team slipping a major deadline.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. So you're taking in, there's all these um, kind of like really apparent signals, mm-hmm. like commits and, and, and emails and messages on, on, uh, on Slack. Um, but then there's also stuff that happens outside of the office, um, you know, at dinners and other people meeting, um, uh, are there other more? Are there other signals that you get that are more subtle that aren't like the more kind of direct uh, forms of communication?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think pull requests. You know, yeah. just having kind of ambient awareness of how yeah. the the cadence of pull requests coming from the team and comments that are left on them. So the cadence too is important. Yeah, yeah. It's just cool. a you know good good hygiene as a team to, yeah. or as a manager to really kind of watch that and, and not understand how your team is functioning. Cool. When was the last
0: time you went out to go fly?
1: Well, it's been a while. Yeah. A startups taking up all my time and <laughs> yeah. my budget. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'd love to get back into it. The next step for me is to get my IFR, which is instrument training, which uh, surprisingly actually takes probably another six months to get. So it's almost the same Length of time that it took to get my original pilot's license to get the instrument license. So what is that that all about, the instrument license? So it allows you to fly in instrument conditions, which include uh, flying through clouds. And the um, FAA defines that in a very specific way. Even flying near clouds, you still have to have uh, an instrument license for. Um, And then also flying in certain weather conditions, of course, which include clouds like uh, fog and um, it, it's really kind of a necessity to get into, uh, some airports like a uh, airport that's popular in the Bay area, South Lake Tahoe, by Lake Tahoe, and you pretty much need an IFR license to fly in there. I see. Since it's always a uh, li- little bit foggy in the area. I
0: see. seems like a great benefit of being a pilot is, I mean, you can get to all these like cool airports in like Tahoe or even, even across the country and yeah, you can just fly yourself there.
1: Yep, right. <laughs> it's it's really a great tool to have in the Bay Area because yeah. everything's like just uh, out of driving distance. Like um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yosemite, Yosemite yeah. by car. You,
0: Santa yeah. Barbara's got a little airport too.
1: Oh, it does. Yeah, probably a cool yep. place to get down to. And they're all four to five hours to drive to, which doesn't make it a day trip. But yeah. Yosemite, I flew to, and I think it was fifty-five minutes. Oh wow! Yeah, that's
0: that's, oh, that's amazing. So I imagine one day you might want to buy your own plane.
1: Maybe. We'll, yeah. we'll say, yeah, though they've done the math on it. And the break even, I think is flying about 200 hours a, yeah. year, a year, which is a lot.
0: People buy them and they also rent them out. Right. Yeah.
1: And the planes that I flew at the school, the trainer aircraft were yeah. actually all owned yeah. by people in the Bay area that rented them out. What would be your, your dream plane? Oh gosh. Probably a, uh, probably a Mooney. Oh, yeah. So Mooney is, it's kind of like the Porsche of single engine planes. Yeah. It's 200 horsepower, goes 200 miles per hour, which is pretty fast for a single engine plane. Uh, Low wing can pull a few G's in that. (laughs) It's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. Tiny little plane. Sounds fun.
0: Well, hopefully, I'll get a chance to to fly with you. I know. As a a passenger, of course. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to take a quick break. And after that, we'll get into some engineering leadership topics. And we're back. All right. So now it's time to get into some engineering leadership. Been pretty impressed with how Brad has built his team and the, the speed at which he was able to do that. I'm really curious on your hiring process. And, of course, it's a it's a funnel. You've got to have candidates coming in at the top. So I'm really um I'm really curious on how you go about sourcing and finding
1: uh, finding that initial set of candidates to start evaluating. Sure, yeah. So most of the sourcing that we do now is via a contract recruiter that we have on staff now. So she'll go out and uh, find people. I I give her a hiring profile, mm-hmm. and she'll find people um, mostly through our uh, my own LinkedIn network and the networks of people on the team. Of course, those are some of the best people, because there's already a connection. Yep. Um, so that's worked pretty well. We also do pretty well in inbound, that is people applying directly to us through our careers page. And a p- part of that is just being a, an awesome product that straddles consumer and SaaS, because we have a lot of users out there that just use Mixed Max on their personal Gmail account. Maybe they don't even use Salesforce. They're not a salesperson. They're not a recruiter, kind of our bread and butter. Uh, and the demographic that we target the most, but they just really enjoy Mixmax for Mm -hmm. scheduling emails later, setting up automation. And our product is especially appealing to engineers out there because we have a ton of automation and a really rich API. So engineers that are looking around to hack their own Gmail tend to land on our product and be impressed by it and, and email in. And that starts a conversation. Do inbound requests, do those typically come to you or do they go to your recruiter? Uh, so they go to me, so I handle all those, and the entire team actually sees every application. And and I try to outsource that to others on the team yeah. to hire for specific roles and screen candidates.
0: What, what tool are you using to to manage all your inbound
1: candidates? So Mixmax, of course. Yep. So all the inbound candidates, when they apply through the form on our website, that comes through via an email. And then once it's in Gmail, of course, then it's in the domain of Mixmax, and then we can set reminders on it. Uh, we can set up um, various automation workflows in Mixmax to send some candidates to Slack. So we have a Slack channel where Mixmax will actually post notifications for applications, and then people can comment on it and we can have a discussion around it. Uh, but it's been a great way to to use the product and really kind of grease the wheels when it comes to handling all the inbound. Yeah, that's awesome. I.
0: Really looking forward to trying this out uh, for myself. Ac- actually, mm-hmm. and how much of your time uh, do you spend on recruiting? If you had to think about your your, if you have one hundred percent of time as a engineering manager, how much of that one hundred percent are you are you dedicating
1: towards um, hiring responsibilities? Probably at least twenty five percent. So I think the rule of thumb for a founder is it should be 50%, right? <laughs> and it only goes up as yeah. the company gets bigger, which is kind of counterintuitive. But it, recruiting is everything. It's the lifeblood of the company. Yeah. So I'm always keeping an eye out for recruits, even on GitHub. So Mixmax, uh, we participate heavily in open source projects and have many of our own. I uh, actually wrote a blog post about this, about how our culture is to open source everything by default. Um, and we've done that and contributed a, quite a bit to the NPM community. Um, but it also kind of works great as a, uh, a honeypot for <laughs> great talent mm-hmm. um, who find out, who start using the projects and commit pull requests or follow, follow issues against our, our projects. And so I'll, of course, uh, go through those and and um, you know see if there's anyone who's really awesome there and worth reaching out to. So you, have,
0: you, you made some hires. I uh, have, through yeah. Through, through GitHub. Cool. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's I, I actually kind of a funny story, because uh, one of the modules that we use was written by a student at Worcester Polytech, uh, and I only learned this later, but he he made a, um, a breaking change to his module that actually uh, accidentally uh, indirectly broke our product and took it down. Oops. And his his change was to make checking for valid email address stricter. Um, they ended up blocking us from sending emails to certain types of email addresses. So I wrote this really angry GitHub issue and said, "Oh, why did you make this change? You know, it completely brought us down and everything. And he gave a really thoughtful response about why the change was made. It was per the RFC spec on emails. And he was absolutely right. You know, I, I, I was wrong to criticize. And I thought, oh, wow, this is a really smart, thoughtful engineer. You know, I'll, I'll ask him what he's doing for his next internship. And one thing led to another, and he interned with us and then uh, ended up joining full-time. Awesome. So, yeah. But it is funny how those things happen. <laughs> <laughs> so you've also, um, uh, I know
0: from our previous uh, conversation that you also um, attend hackathons.
1: We do, yep. Yeah. And this kind of all happened accidentally, because to be honest, I didn't really know about hackathons, because they weren't happening when you and I were in school. When we were coming (laughs) up.
0: hackathons, I don't remember being a thing until maybe like five or six years later.
1: And it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And there's now an international organization called Major League Hacking, MLH, that organizes all these. Sounds competitive. I I know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But uh, it's, it's really cool. So they're all set up uh, in similar ways at, at this, all the schools that run them, um, usually run by the CS program, of course, or the engineering school. And they're usually like a 36-hour all-weekend hackathon, usually held in the, the school's gym. But um, what was kind of the accident was that a lot of those hackathons that were organized by students those students found Mixmax and started using Mixmax to organize their events. So they used Mixmax for all their email outreach to find sponsors for the hackathons. And so uh, when it came time to pay for the product, they started emailing us saying like, hey, we're a poor student organization. Can you give us a free account? And we said, oh, certainly, yeah. Oh, by the way, like, can we sponsor your hackathon? That's really awesome. So we ended up uh, trading free Mixmax accounts with them for a free hackathon sponsorship and ended up sponsoring a ton of hackathons. Uh, Purdue, Illinois, Michigan, Princeton, Stanford, Berkeley, Virginia Tech. And um, even flew out to some of them. So I flew out to the Purdue hackathon earlier this year. And when when you sponsor a hackathon, you typically sponsor a prize. So and and you also give them a challenge. So our challenge was, of course, to for students to build on top of our MixMax API, developer.mixmax.com. And to just build something really cool. So really open-ended. And so students built really awesome projects. Like in Mixmax, our slash command menu is a big thing. It's just like the Slack slash command menu, but brought into your email. Uh, and we have a, a similar API where they can add slash commands to that. So, so they wrote these really cool slash commands where you could uh, type in like slash donate and figure out a charity that was close to you. So you can um, ask your recipient to donate money. To some charity, just little, little things like that that they could build in a few hours, um, and then companies also offer prizes, and uh, and most companies give out Amazon gift certificates or like a Microsoft probably gives out an Xbox or something, and so since we're a pretty non-traditional company, we we thought ah let's let's give out something cool, so we thought about well what would be like a really cool prize that you would want as a student. But that you wouldn't necessarily buy for yourself yeah, because you're on a limited budget and whatnot. Um, So we thought, what about Lego kits? Like, Lego kits are awesome. Legos are awesome. Yeah. And and Lego has really high-end kits, too. Like, they have the Millennium Falcon and, like, the Simpsons house. So we ended up just buying, like, the four most expensive Lego kits. Like, these really awesome, like, huge boxes, 2,000 pieces. And offering those as our hackathon prize. That's great. And those took off. Everyone loved those.
0: They also have legos now that are programmable right oh yeah like mindstorms yeah mindstorms I, yep those are all do a hackathon probably just uh, yeah that, right <laughs> that's cool
1: so so i flew out to purdue and uh, gave away the lego kits a surprise yeah and um and the ha- hackathon truly is like 36 hours straight yeah starts friday evening still Sunday. were you morning. up Uh,
0: For uh, many hours?
1: I am proud to say that of all the companies that attended, I was the only company, the only company sponsor to actually pull an all-nighter with the students. Wow. And I stayed the first night all night until 8.30 a.m. Saturday.
0: That's that's impressive. I don't know if I could still do that. Yeah. I could probably do it if I had uh, enough... Uh, sugar or something Yeah. well yeah <laughs> so, so <keep>
1: <laughs> the students uh, got me at 2 a.m and we all did espresso shots oh, and then just coded like wow. I, I was teaching them all these uh, tips and tricks and node yeah and so uh, you were the only sponsor that
0: was that cool to be there Yep. until, until eight thirty in the morning yep and that was it yeah. was so much fun that and, builds up a lot of credibility i'm sure with the uh with the students
1: yep yeah. and had a line at my desk just um Coaching people and debugging with yeah. them and um, teaching them, uh, you know, web stuff and node. But it was just, it was so much fun. Yeah. And for me too, it's been so long since I've actually coded 24 hours straight. Like that's, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, probably since college, yeah. probably since Apple actually.
0: <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember those days.
1: Yep. You know, so, uh, and hackathons are really a great filter even beyond career fairs because it's a self-selecting group of students. Like. Think about that. Only the most dedicated engineers are willing to spend 36 hours straight right. yeah. in a gym, you know, coding. Yeah.
0: Eating pizza. Yeah. And <laughs> Eating a, pizza a, and Pringles. Special <laughs>
1: shots. Drinking espresso shots. So. Yep. <laughs> two, 2.30. So it was just uh, an awesome group of students. Yeah. And it was great to, you know, talk about JavaScript APIs at yeah. 4 a.m. in the morning.
0: Yeah. It's probably not the most uh, sustainable thing to be doing consistently,
1: though. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and some students do that. They travel around. Yeah. Now that they have this parent organization, MLH, yeah. to have a whole schedule or there's a hackathon at a school every weekend somewhere in the country. Yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll be attending more of those. I, I just personally okay. really enjoy it. And we get access to the best students that way. Cool. So um, I, I know
0: you have an internship program. Mm hmm. I'm wondering how you um, how you think about that program and how it's structured and what the results of that have
1: have been. Yeah, so I believe strongly in intern programs, and a, a part of that is paying it forward because I started. Well, you and I started, yeah, uh, back when I was interning at Apple. Um, we've had great success with our intern program, and I'm actually proud to say at MixMax we have a hundred percent return rate for interns who we've given return offers to. That's, so that's four out of four, so that's pretty good. So I, I think that's a testament to one of our biggest selling points is that we don't really have an intern program per se. We just pull students in from from school. We don't put them on intern projects. We just pull them into the fold. They're peers to other full-time engineers on the team and, uh, and they work and release code, mm-hmm. push to production like everyone else. Um, so we do throw them in the deep end, but I think it's a, a great experience for us both. yeah, for us, we get um, we get people writing full features, of course. we we don't have to make up intern projects. Um and for them, they really get to learn how to be an engineer. Was that a pretty easy decision to make? Did you consider
0: um, at some point, like, hey, maybe there should be separate side projects or versus uh, just drop them into the the main code base and actually let them like ship, you know real uh, real features and operate as a as a real kind of full-time engineer was that a a hard decision that you had to make or was it pretty clear and
1: obvious i did i think it was obvious that we always wanted them to work on big production features like everyone else i think what is tricky about that is you we really have to find Uh, the best of the best out there to be able to do that. So I think like other intern programs where uh, they can bring in interns with little to no experience, even in programming and just teach them for three months. We really have to look for people who are uniquely awesome and uniquely experienced in our stack. Mm -hmm. Um, So that has been a little bit of a trade off because it has uh, limited our pool of possible intern applicants. So
0: you're not necessarily looking to train Someone who's fairly new to, to programming through the internship program. It's for someone that's already got several years of experience um, in programming yeah. in in college, building real things, or yeah. under their belt. Yeah, yeah. So, and we give them a coding test to yeah. see where their
1: experience is. Yeah.
0: Are they paired with someone else on the team in terms of mentorship and helping them onboard onto the code base and?
1: Uh we do uh we typically don't do pair programming though, so they are kind of uh, at least uh, after the the first week or so and they're mm-hmm. just getting their uh feet on the ground, so to speak mm-hmm. but um no, I mean they've been pretty autonomous and yeah and um it's really just we happen to find really awesome people you know yeah. who are up to the task yeah so what's uh what's the interviewing
0: process look like? You mentioned there was a test. Is that the very first start of the process with the test or um, maybe kind of just walk me through what it looks like from initial contact with the potential um, a candidate till you know the uh, the
1: you know the interviews and the eventual hiring so it does all start with the test yeah so that's done with our lead engineer and that's a pair coding test that usually takes uh, anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, we'll have them do a second screen with another engineer on the team. The intern interview is pretty much the same interview for full-time new grads. For senior engineers, we have a slightly modified mm. interview track. But uh, it's it's all the same. And it's the same bar, really, mm-hmm. because we're hiring people, you know, knowing that we want to convert them to full-time. Yeah. So. In what ways is your
0: intern interview different than a senior
1: candidate interview? So senior candidate is more experience based where the intern interview is more just about potential. Can they solve a problem? For senior interviews, uh, senior candidates, I'll actually demonstrate a a Mixmax feature to them, usually over a Google Hangout, and just ask them how they would build that same feature. Um, And I'll usually pick a feature that we've built in a trivial amount of time, usually like a few days, so a smaller feature. But what I wanna hear from them is how they would architect it. Like, would they build a microservice for that specific feature? Of course, depending on the feature. Mm -hmm. Um, What would they choose for the UI? And for me, it just reveals, you know, has this person built something from scratch and shipped it? Um, And that's been a very, very effective filter. And then that's the first step. And after that, we'll do some pair coding. I'll sit down and pair code with them. We'll build a very trivial feature together. Um, and things that I look for there are just, you know, can this person take a list of high-level requirements for me and ask the right follow-up questions to make sure that the spec is specific enough for for them to, to uh, actually implement on their own? And also, does this person have creativity? Mm-hmm. The spec that I give them is purposely ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I look for people that can kind of fill in the holes. And, right. Make their own decisions around what something should look and behave like.
0: That makes sense. That so you don't just want to hand down a spec to someone. You really want them to to take it and run with it. Yep. And add their own input to it. Ask the right questions around it. Yep. Cool. So why, when when someone is considering joining a, a company and they're coming out of school, why? Should they join a startup versus a bigger organization, a bigger company, yeah, the Facebooks or the the Twitters or the
1: the Googles and the Apples? Speed of learning, personal development, 100%. I mean, at a startup, I, I just think of how I developed as an engineer and personally in my time at Apple, my four years end to end. And at a startup, I mean, gosh, those four years at Apple could be compressed into four months at a startup. And really, your speed of learning anywhere in any job is your speed of shipping. It's how often do you ship? Because through every ship cycle from dream to deployment, you learn something new. And at a big company, ship cycles are always months. At Apple, it was a year, I guess, for major operating system releases. Um, at a startup, you, you go through that cycle every day. And of course, admittedly, it's a it's a smaller cycle because what you're shipping is is smaller than what a big company would ship in, in a yearly ship cycle. But you want to optimize yourself to get through that shipping cycle as fast as possible because mm-hmm. you're learning something. And I think people realize that as a startup, um, that once you start uh, working on a diverse set of technologies and releasing new features and hearing customer feedback you just you learn so much and and that's why four months out of startup is better for personal development than four years at a big company wow that's
0: very compelling and I think very good advice for engineers that are coming up and coming out of school and considering uh, where to go it's all about learning yeah as you're as you were saying and the speed of learning mm-hmm and being able to to actually ship something, maybe even on your first day,
1: that's our rule. You got to ship on the first day yeah, do. Oh, to wow. production. Love that. Yep. And and I would say overall, though, the very best candidates out there for a startup are people who want to start their own company themselves. Mm. Um, you absolutely have to have experience at a startup before starting your own company. It's very very hard to go from working at Google for X number of years. Um, to jumping into the deep end and mm-hmm. trying to get into startup mode and faster yeah. ship cycles. And those are candidates that I, I look for. So you're looking at what side projects have they've done while
0: they've been in school? Have they launched um, a product before?
1: Yep. Uh, and Are they demonstrating entrepreneurial tendencies, that sort of thing? Yep. Cool. The, and the way I asked that in the initial screening call is just saying you know, not, it's not what you want to do next. What do you want to do after mm. your next thing? Mm. So if you're to join mix max or if you're to join Google, like what do you want to do after mix max or Google? Yeah. And, and that reveals their true ambitions. Yeah. And when, when people say, I want to start my own company
0: yeah,
1: or I want to join a really small early team. Uh, that's great. That's a great thing. I signal. love that. And so, because I can empathize with that. Yeah. That's my own background. And, um, and I'd love to have them aboard because it's also my way of paying that forward. When, when I joined my last company, Inkling, the CEO, r- really great guy, Matt McInnes said to me, Brad, I hear you want to start a company. Um, this is the absolute best place to be. Come join me, build my company, uh, build my engineering team, and then quit. Go off, build your own thing. Mm-hmm. And then he said, I'll even invest in you. And I'm going big eyed like, whoa, this is really cool. And sure enough, Three years later, after I worked on the team that built the now flagship product uh, with others and uh, built an engineering team there, uh, when the time felt right, you know, I left with my two co-workers, Olaf and Sean Pori, and Matt stuck by his promise and became our first investor, which, by the way, is a great way to quit your job. Yeah, when that's you
0: awesome. Quit with an investment check. You've already got a check to start the company. <laughs> yeah,
1: so yeah. he was our first investor. Yeah. And, uh that was, of course, really, you know, great signal to uh, other folks who ended up investing in us that mm-hmm. our former manager, you know, uh, was uh, investing in us.
0: So on your team, if someone wants to to leave eventually and they want to start their own company, that's something that you would act- actually encourage. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and it's it's great. paying
1: it forward. Yeah. You know, and, and hopefully I can invest in them financially, too. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> But uh, I look forward to that. You know, I, I want MixMax to be the place that people join for a few years, or whatnot, and go off and do really ambitious things. Yeah, and I'll teach them absolutely everything that I can. So, do you follow the? You know, the, it was like the the Facebook
0: mantra of you know move fast and break things. Although that's been modified a yeah. bit to be move fast and break things, but with stable infrastructure. Yeah, <laughs> what? Uh, I know you like to move fast. Um, How do you, how do you think about that
1: mindset? We, we move fast and break things to be honest. Uh, We, I mean, we kind of believe in the mantra of make it valuable, then easy, then fast, then pretty. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. It's all about speed. We tend to ship things when they're 95% done. 90% done is not polished enough. hundred percent is just wasted effort. Um, but we really we we try to ship things quickly. Um, now, in terms of breaking things, it it does happen. <laughs> I, hmm. I think we're there. There's that natural trade off of time versus features versus quality. The yeah. joke is pick two. Yeah. Uh, more features, more quality, less time. Um, so right now we're probably shipping uh, uh, too many features and too little time with a trade off of quality. But but that's something that's that's easily adjusted for. Um, but in startups, speed is absolutely everything. Yeah,
0: Are you aggressive about killing features that aren't working? Because it sounds like you're trying a lot of things. And mm-hmm. um, some things yeah, may be valuable or may, may not be valuable enough. Um, are you
1: proactive about killing and removing things as well? Oh uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think we, as a team, are very um, experimental and mm-hmm. putting features out there. Um, and yeah, that's a natural consequence of, of taking risks as yeah. we should because not everything makes it. So do
0: you also, uh, as, you're, as you're building half the account for things like technical debt, how do you prioritize building new features versus um, going back and refactoring and cleaning things up and paying down debt?
1: So one thing I don't do is actually have tech debt cycles that are rigid and done. Some teams do them every like two or three weeks or every other sprint or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just I encourage everyone on the team just to work on tech debt roughly 20% of their time Mm -hmm. um, and really leave it up to the team to make the best decisions around that. But we do have a roadmap of tech debt that we call our engineering projects roadmap. That includes bigger projects, like changing um, the technology that runs all our distributed queues throughout the product. Um, and people just chip away at that in between product features. Cool. So your, uh,
0: team, uh, when in how big is your team? So my team is seven full-time engineers. And what is the composition of the team look like
1: in terms of skill sets? So we are um, really all full stack engineers. Um, Some people do certainly lean front end and some lean back end, Mm -hmm. Um, but really everyone on the team can work on everything. Um, Part of the reason we're able to do that is because we don't have a DevOps function because we host everything on a platform as a service. Mm -hmm. Even our database is Mm -hmm. hosted with MongoDB. Mm -hmm. Elasticsearch is hosted with Elastic Cloud. Our application is run on Elastic Beanstalk, which is AWS's platform as a service offering. It's almost like Heroku. It's mm-hmm. just one-line deployment is their their uh, tagline. So any engineer really can work on on um any code base. Where it's all JavaScript too. Yeah. So that's helped out a lot. And that there isn't the language barrier if they want to contribute to another area of code. Um but I I think that uh when Hiring though, it's important that that we balance out back end versus front end. Mm-hmm. And I, I usually don't use the terms back end and front end. I think of it more as engineers that have a preference to build for the single user mm-hmm. experience, and it's pretty easy to tell if they're that way. And I personally am kind of lean that way a little bit more mm-hmm. towards UXs. And then there's the engineers that build for multiple users, mm-hmm. engineers that think about building something for scale. Mm-hmm. And both are absolutely equally valuable, mm. and I found there's kind of been a fifty fifty split in engineers mm. that I talked to It's just does an engineer lean this one way or lean the other way
0: yeah that's a really interesting way to to think about it. I hadn't thought about it that way before yeah single user experience versus building for multiple users
1: yeah and sense. and that's that's kind of our Apple training right yeah. you know as, as you said, it's all about the user experience, not the code behind the user experience yeah.
0: So once someone has joined the company and you know, they're, they're shipping and um, they're going through the, the uh, experience of uh, being a team member, um, how do you um, continue to support them um, as they're kind of
1: growing uh, while working for you? Uh, so we have uh, w- one thing that's worked out pretty well. That's, the long lines of kind of ongoing training mm-hmm. is every week, every Thursday we have a meeting called engineering coworking. And it's kind of an informal meeting where the engineering team all sits in a room together. We bring in a few remote folks on the team or on the, um, the video conference and we all share what we learned that week, whether it's something that we found on hacker news or, it's an interesting new code pattern or it's a new product that got released. Mm-hmm. And that's been really great just to share knowledge among yeah. the team. And I personally have learned a lot <laughs> just from that, <laughs> you know, engineers on my team that that are uh, teaching me every day. Yeah. Um, so I think that's been great to kind of grow engineers and, and, and also kind of uh, mixing up the arrangement of the team in terms of which engineers work together on certain features. Yeah. Uh, if we can keep that rotation going, then that's oh you a, mix that up. We yes, we like we try to.
0: Um,
1: Versus, if you
0: find a uh, a pair that works well together, or you know, bigger than that, bigger than a two, um, you'd like to uh, break it up though at a certain point so that you're getting more uh, collaboration with different people occurring yeah um you found that to be more valuable than kind of keeping if if you find something that's working really well in in one sense it might make sense to like keep that going mm-hmm. but there's
1: also some benefits in breaking that up as well it's it's a trade off yeah. yeah it's the the value is trying new things um introducing new ideas mm-hmm. um but there's certainly an efficiency trade off because mm-hmm. yeah you don't it is hard to pull an engineer off a project that that engineer has a lot of domain expertise right. in, and then someone else has to spend a few weeks learning that new code base. Yeah, But in the end, it's almost always worth the investment.
0: You're building up more. Um, the, that domain knowledge is being transferred across the team yeah. over time, exactly, which is really valuable. Yeah, Cool. Um, I know you've written about this concept called the stay interview which is something um, I'm not familiar with. Have you? Maybe you can tell us about that and um, you know, what is it and why is it valuable?
1: So the stay interview is something that I, I read about the concept a long time ago and started doing with my team at Inkling and have done occasionally at MixMax. So the idea behind a stay interview is to preempt the employee leaving. So the stay interview is the complement to the exit interview. So, the exit interview, as we all know, is held on an employee's last day, yeah. usually with the manager. and it's it's the no holds barred forum where the employee gives honest feedback because it's their last day. um what did work, what what didn't work, what was really got on their nerves the fast past few months leading up to their departure. But the obvious problem with it is it's too late. (laughs) Employee's already out the door. You you can't save it at that point. It's
0: all good stuff to know before the exit
1: interview. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the stay interview is to preempt that. And the reason it's called the stay interview is because it's the same format as the exit interview. It's honest, straightforward feedback. But it's done while the employee's still at at your company. And so the questions are structured the same way. Just very high level. uh, Very open-ended. And intended to surface the employee's motivations for staying at your company or potentially leaving. And the key question in the stay interview is what might entice you away from us, right? Like everyone at any job thinks about this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like what if I got an offer from X or if I got VC funding for my own thing, whatever it may be, there's always a reason someone will leave their job. And it's it's admittedly definitely an uncomfortable question to ask your employee, um, but it's it's the most important one because you have to understand that where their motivations are, what might lure them away, and and um, you know try to preempt that, try to make things better, try to um, or or maybe come up with a plan. Right as I mentioned earlier, if if what will lure them away is just timing on doing their own startup, then mm-hmm. then have an honest conversation with them about that. Yeah. When, when do you want to do this? How can I help? Yeah, totally. And how can you help me by transitioning your work? You know, in the coming months. Love that. So let's talk now a little bit
0: about how things get built at uh, Mix Max. What's how is a new feature idea um, curated? You know, how do they? Where do they typically come from, and how do they end up being
1: put into production? Sure. So we don't have PMs at Mixmax, do not have product managers. Really, we just provide the team with the vision, general direction, and the team brings the ideas in the road roadmap. Mm-hmm. Uh, even as three founders, like when we meet to talk, we don't talk about roadmap. We try mm-hmm. to make, we we make that a rule. Mm-hmm. We only talk about roadmap and features in the presence of the entire team because it's the team generating the, the ideas. It's very bottom up in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, we kind of have to structure things for that. So one thing we do is have pretty much unlimited transparency across the company. So all support emails that come into Mixmax go to everyone on the team. So we have a Google group set up for that. And I encourage everyone on the team, like, hey, when you're on your commute, like, just flip through some of those emails and just... Just take the temperature, so to speak, of mm-hmm. what people are saying about the product and complaints that are coming in. Yeah, Are there too many bugs? Was there a recent regression? And it, it works great because when people on the team come up with ideas, it's usually in response to, I saw this email. Some person emailed in two weeks ago and asked for this feature. And mm-hmm. I riffed on it a little bit and thought about how we can integrate it with this other feature and, and built this awesome thing.
0: Yeah. I like that a lot. I'm now remembering back to my days at Posturus, and one of the, the great things that um, Sachin, I believe, put in place there was for every dev to spend at least a day, a whole day, just answering support emails, and we would rotate through the whole dev team. But it really gave you a sense of, like like you mentioned, the temperature, but you know where are the main pain points, what, what things are, are falling over, Probably a hint to some of the, the technical debt or the uh, the strengthening of certain um, systems that would need to take place, and it was uh, a, yeah really great way to put us in touch um, or uh, place in touch with our with our customers. So I think that's a really great um, way to do it, and you don't you don't have to go that full bore where you're answering customer support emails. Um, but yeah, at least being able to check in and see it and see the stream is, is super
1: valuable. Yeah, I mean, it's the one key to being a successful engineer at a startup or really any size company is to have product empathy. Mm-hmm. And as an engineering leader, it's very, very important to always speak in customer outcomes and avoid focusing the team on specific technologies, because technologies are really only a means to the end, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, not, not an end itself um so yeah cool so
0: going back to how you uh, create your roadmap um uh, sounds like a lot of it is actually coming from the engineering team
1: mhm it's a, about a third and and i believe that if done right any company's roadmap should be sourced a third from engineering mm-hmm. a third from design and a third from product sales marketing mm-hmm. and, and that whole function and we kind of have that balance at Mixmax now. Um and we and it's really through these mechanisms of transparency, engineers seeing customer feedback and and we do have a bias to as I mentioned earlier, hiring engineers that that already have customer empathy and are very product focused. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, about a third of all features I'd say were engineering sourced. That's a that seems like a really reasonable balance to try to to
0: strike and I'm sure the sales folks appreciate being able to have
1: their input really drive at least a a third of the product. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And um, one way we structure that is to have a weekly demo day, Hmm. which is a meeting where everyone in the company shows off what they've been working on, Mm -hmm. whether it's a, a known roadmap feature or just an experiment or prototype that they've been playing with. And even our designer prototypes, uh, you know, working features, usually with the help of an engineer. And um, and we try to make the demo day more of a conversation rather than like a presentation or, or like show and tell. Um, because we follow up with action items. We talk mm-hmm. about how we can kind of riff on this feature and, and um, merge it with others and, mm-hmm. and really kind of refine it. And if all goes well, well, then collectively as a team, we'll green light the project and ask the engineer to spend their next few weeks on shipping it and yeah. polishing it.
0: So someone could, in, in some spare capacity, or if you have something that you guys have talked about, but it's fairly abstract at that moment, um, if you can get some sort of prototype to, to kind of demonstrate the the feature in some more real sense, um you guys can actually make a decision at that point uh to to green light it and make it into a thing to dedicate more time and more resources into yep cool when do you
1: typically uh do demo day we do it every thursday immediately prior to engineering co-working what time is that uh 2 p.m 2 p.m awesome
0: All right. So any other topics you want to, to, to drop into? We've talked a little bit about, um, uh, product mantra speed of execution. Mm -hmm. Cool. I think we got a lot of great stuff there, Brad. Thank you for, for being here. Appreciate your time sound like a really great leader to, to work for, for uh, the listeners out there. If uh, they want to get in contact with you, maybe let us know a
1: little bit about what you're hiring for and how they can reach out to you. Sure, absolutely. So we're hiring across the board, across all engineering roles. We're, we just say that we're hiring full-stack engineers, um, but really we'll you know, hire anyone that's just a, a really great engineer and can learn really quickly. We don't hire for a specific language or framework because those, as, as we all know in the engineering community, those change all the time. Um, we're also hiring up uh, sales roles, marketing, recruiter, just about every single role at a startup right now. Yeah, awesome. Things are moving fast. It's a great product. I would work for Brad
0: for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me.